0: Let's say you're in a red state and there's like your Trump Republicans and your not Trump Republicans. It's quite conceivable that you could be promoting two or three candidates out of that primary into a top five general. And then the general electorate would get to be the ones that decide, you know, amongst these candidates, which one has the broadest appeal.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Nathan Lockwood, is the executive director of Rank the Vote. Nathan's one of the advocates prescribing changes to our electoral system as an antidote to the toxic polarization, negativity, and gridlock that have been characterizing our politics. And some aspects of our system are part of the dangerous brew that's enabling right-wing radicalization to come to power. So I'm gonna to continue to talk to people like Nathan who are suggesting solutions that might help. Rank the Vote is working to help everyday people build robust movements for rank choice voting in their own states. I asked Nathan about how he came to this work and what he's up to at Rank the Vote. You should listen. So, first my sponsor, then my interview with Nathan at Rank the Vote.
0: This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
1: Hi, Nathan. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Yeah, my name's Nathan Lockwood. I'm executive director of Ranked the Vote, a national nonpartisan nonprofit organization working to grow support for ranked choice voting. I have been working at Ranked the Vote as uh, executive director since June of 2021. I co-founded the organization with colleagues from Massachusetts, where I live, back at the end of 2019. I've been working on ranked choice voting. For about five years, when I got involved in the movement in Massachusetts, which grew to become the largest statewide movement in the US. And prior to that, I worked in the technology uh, industry for about 25 years. I noticed you went to
1: Yale and got a major in philosophy, which is always a good basis for a career in the tech industry. How did that all fit together? Why'd you pick that major and why'd you switch into uh, the tech world way back when?
0: Yeah, that's a really uh, good question. Thanks for asking about my philosophy degree. <laughs> that stuff was too hard for me to take. So I, uh,
1: <laughs> I took computer science instead, but
0: well, good for you. I probably, I sometimes kick myself for not going to computer science. I really uh, came into Yale uh, a little vocationally challenged in terms of my thought processes and just really with a lot of curiosity about what makes the world tick. I wouldn't say it was a challenging major. Yale had a a nice program called philosophy with tracks. So I took philosophy with track and psychology. So I was able to, to get a major from Yale, a bachelor of arts with really, I think I ended up with only six courses from the philosophy department. (laughs) I feel really good about what I learned and how I was able to grow my mind during that time. But, uh, but I, I wouldn't uh, do too much bragging about the difficulty of the, uh,
1: I was just thinking of like how hard it is to read Kant or something like
0: that. Oh, that is true. That There that, that are some incredibly, I, Heidegger uh, stands out in my mind as being yeah. a real trip to yeah. try to wrap your head around. So what was the
1: pivot into the 25 years in, in tech?
0: I had uh, been kind of a computer enthusiast in high school and junior high school, maybe even in elementary school, thanks, to, you know, I credit my dad for, you know, bringing a Apple PC into the household. So I was able to get comfortable with that. And um, coming out of college with that philosophy degree, I, I was involved in political activism for for a couple of years, working just kind of odd temp jobs. Um, economy wasn't great in 93. <laughs> and then I met my wife. And uh, actually, before I met my wife, I thought I should do something a little more interesting job-wise. I was getting a little bored with temp work and uh, thought I would take some coursework to solidify my computer skills, went to Harvard Extension School and got 12 credits. And the economy, the tech economy back then, like if you knew how to type and were familiar with the name of one of the computer languages, it seemed like you could get a job uh, as a programmer. And so that, I was very fortunate to to launch my programming career just as I met my wife and we were preparing to have our first child. It worked out very well (laughs) that way.
1: I've noticed that people who get into the tech industry or into business, when they think about politics, they start to think about things systemically. You know What might underlay the systems that are not working as well as they would like? Do you think that's true in your case?
0: Yeah, I do think that the, you see that a lot with people in tech who get involved in politics. In Massachusetts, a lot of the first movers when we were building the movement for ranked choice voting there, which it, 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 were... Uh, tech folks who really saw it as a system design approach to remedying some of the problems with American politics.
1: How did you first hear about ranked choice voting and what struck you originally about it that led to such a strong interest?
0: My uh, children went to college and I was looking to get more involved in politics again. I'd been involved in kind of human rights stuff very actively at the end of high school and in college, civil and political stuff after college. I was looking to get back involved in things. And my perspective, had kind of shaped over the years just through different interactions with people serving in town government. And there was a group called the Centrist Project that was forming nationally. They're now called Unite America. They're a very important force in the reform world now. They were founded by a Dartmouth professor named Charlie Whelan. And he wrote a book called The Centrist Manifesto, which I read and enjoyed, learned a lot from. I wouldn't necessarily call my personal view centrist by any means. But what appealed to me about the project that he had was he was trying to address what myself, even as someone kind of personally a little bit left of center in some of their politics and open to, to other solutions in other ways. What I found appealing was he was talking about making changes to help get people talking across the aisles, get the Republicans and the Democrats working together to you know, implement solutions, uh, compromise solutions. And uh, in his book, I think that's the first time I heard of ranked choice voting in the Centrist Manifesto. There's a little chapter in the back that talks about that as one of the solutions.
1: I had uh, Charlie Whelan as a guest on the show back in 2017. He has a series of interesting books uh, that are kind of popular treatises and statistics and economics. And uh, he happened to marry a, a junior high school friend of mine so uh, I was kind of interested to talk to him. I don't think that I'm like fully persuaded of his sort of centrist views as he puts them. But um, I do think that, that the ranked choice voting is something that really ought to be looked at. And I've had a couple people on, including you, to talk about that. And he's a really smart guy. So that's interesting that that, that came to you that way. So how did you follow up on, on that after you read that.
0: So I read read the book and I got involved, you know, in a very pretty light way, more educating myself way about the work the Centrist Project was undertaking, which at the time their strategy was something, I think they called it the fulcrum strategy or something like that. Their goal was to elect some kind of moderate, possibly independent candidates to the Senate in particular, where they felt that even just as few as five senators could sort of form majorities between the two parties and help kind of break the logjam to be a bridge and get them kind of working productively on compromised legislation to solve pressing problems.
1: It's interesting because we have that logjam right now and they do the opposite, but, uh, they stop yeah. things from going forward. But, <laughs> <Right>. uh,
0: <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah. No, I understand where you're definitely, where you're coming from there. I, I, it's kind of a funny question is, is the, is the problem that there are, uh, you know, too many, uh, you know, mansions and cinemas are not enough. If there were some, if, if there were a few of those in the Republican Party and they were willing to pass things as well as block things, you know, would we get anywhere? So it's an interesting question. Yeah, I, one of the things about that solution is that sort of presupposes that either of the two parties want to pass legislation, actually, as opposed to posture about legislation. I think,
1: that, I think both parties do want to pass legislation, usually. And I think sometimes the people in the middle no less than the people in the bulk of the parties, (laughs) and sometimes they don't. Politics is complicated, Um, and we are in such a polarized time. So tell me a little more about your path forward to become really involved in uh, organizing around ranked choice
0: voting. So I read it from the Centrist Project, and so I was thinking about these things. They had this strategy of electing these candidates, which I started to wrap my head around. It became pretty apparent early on that this was going to, be a little problematic as I start to, for the first time in my life, really seriously think about electoral politics. What would happen if you run an independent candidate? You know, sort of issues with a spoiler problem, like we see when candidates like Ross Perot run or Ralph Nader run, and they they kind of penalize potentially the candidate with the most similar views and, and all that sort of, and voters are afraid to vote for them and waste their votes, that sort of thing. So right around this time, I started to see social media advertising and get some emails from a group that was forming in Massachusetts called Voter Choice Massachusetts. This is back in early 2017. Uh, I started to, to see these messages and I said, well, this is that ranked choice voting thing that Charlie Whelan was writing about. This is sounds like it could really be important. Like maybe I should be working on this and then the candidate stuff and that'll work out better. <laughs> uh, so that's how I got involved with starting to see the information from them what
1: did you see as the problems in the system that you were hoping to remedy
0: the main problem was really our the more i looked at our system the more it became apparent to me that you see these problems you say well you can we can fix the problems we're very innovative people you know here in the u.s we have a lot of great ideas so how do you get new ideas into the political system and that's where you know dr- following that line of thinking led to sort of this root cause analysis oh the problem is the new ideas the new voices can't crack into the election system to get their ideas heard by the voters in a way that voters can make meaningful choices to promote this set of ideas over that set of ideas we're kind of constrained to two camps with you know both which have you know certain interest groups around them and so there's kind of some limits there it's a longer process to get new ideas introduced in the current system that way
1: So explain how ranked choice voting might solve that.
0: Yeah. So it's at a very basic level. So, I mean, to to understand our current system where, you know, we, which, what we're used to doing is you go into the ballot box to vote for a candidate for office. There could be two candidates running or 10 candidates running. You get to pick one of them and the candidate who gets the most votes wins. So in primary elections, what that means is, It can sometimes be a a crapshoot. When we have open seats, like for Congress in Massachusetts, it's not uncommon for six to 12 people to run for these offices. In the last two cycles, we've had open seats. The winners have won with 21% or 22% of the vote, meaning that 78% of the voters in those primaries did not choose to support the person who went on to be the nominee for, in this case, the Democratic Party, which was basically a shoe in in the general election. Because of our winner-take-all system, where we have these single-member districts, one thing you have to understand, and I'm sure you do, you and your listeners do, is like 80 to 85 percent of the districts in the U.S. for Congress are you can predict with 99 percent accuracy which party is going to win them because of the the district composition. So that's the the primaries, and then the generals. I think you know the classic example is G.W. Bush and Al Gore with Ralph Nader running. Now everybody on the left side is like. Ralph, don't run. People, do not vote for Ralph. This is not going to end well. (laughs) And uh, and so as it turned out, they were right. Nader gets a small fraction of the vote, and it all comes down to Florida. And election decided by 500 votes there. Nader gets 100,000 votes. Exit polls show clearly. uh, Had Nader not run, instead of G.W. Bush winning by 500 votes, Nader probably wins by something like 20,000 votes and a majority of the electorate. Gore, sorry, I apologize. Yeah, of course not, Nader. Um, and so um, so what this shows is how our system that works okay when two people run immediately starts to break down as you start to get a third, a fourth, a fifth choice. And that's really the problem is canceling choice for voters, canceling the participation of new perspectives in the system.
1: So um, just to, to kind of fully clarify this for uh, people who haven't followed it very closely. So you're talking about a primary where where one candidate wins with a plurality of 21%. If there were ranked choice voting in that primary, how do they calculate who gets what votes and why might that lead to a result that more people would be happy with in that among the voters in that primary?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, let me walk through that for sure. So first let's let's talk about what does a ranked choice ballot look like? A ranked choice ballot is it's a very simple uh change a simple update to the ballots we have now so you still have however many candidates there are running except instead of only picking one of them you're allowed to rank the candidates in the order that you prefer them so you can say um this candidate is my first choice my favorite this one is my second choice this one is my third choice and so on very easy we rank things all the time um some jurisdictions let you rank as many as you want some let you rank up to five Um, There's different ways you can do it. You don't really need to rank more than five typically to almost ensure that your vote will will have maximum impact. The ballots are very easy to fill out. The way that they're counted, it's often referred to as instant runoff voting. And the reason is because um, it sort of simulates uh, conducting a series of runoffs, but Voters have already given us their full information about their preferences for the candidates. So instead of dragging voters out to the polls and having participation problems, you can have one really high turnout, instant runoff election. So the way that works is you start counting ranked choice ballots. We only look at people's first choices as if they ranked no one beyond them. And we put those into piles based on which candidates get which how many first choice votes. If a candidate receives a majority of the votes, they're the winner, just, you know, which is so we're all done. Where the ranked choice voting kicks in is if no candidate receives a majority of the votes, we do a runoff round where we eliminate the candidate with the least support, but we don't throw the ballots of their supporters away. We say, okay, sorry, your top choice couldn't make it. Who was your second choice? And then we count their ballot towards their next choice. And we see if anyone received a majority then, we repeat that process of elimination and reallocation until one candidate demonstrates that they are preferred by a majority over the other candidates.
1: What would be different about candidates that won in a ranked choice system versus candidates that won
0: in our current plurality wins system? Gotcha, yeah, great question. So there's been studies done on jurisdictions that use ranked choice voting, both in the US and overseas. We're talking about a type of ranked choice voting now, we're focused on just sort of simply changing our our winner take all elections with ranked choice voting ballots and ranked choice voting counting called instant runoff voting. And uh, Australia's used the system for 100 years. Um, there's now jurisdictions in the US, like San Francisco, have used it since, I believe, 2005. And there's actually 50 cities in the US using it now. And so we've got a lot of data. I think in November, over 30 cities held municipal elections in the US using ranked choice voting. Studies have been done on these cities that have been using it over the last decade or so that have shown that it fosters less negative campaigning. And there's a a mathematical incentive for this built into the system. When you have a preferential system where to to win, a candidate can benefit from not just being someone's first choice, but also being a voter's second or third choice, they want to get a majority of votes to win. They now have an incentive not to just in our current system, you can just bash your opponent, and sometimes that's even a better strategy than talking about what you are in favor of. In a ranked choice system, there's more than two people running, so it's not just a two-person slugfest. There's, you you'd have a lot of opponents to be bashing if you wanted to bash, and you want to win your opponent's supporters to build your majority. And if you're bashing your opponent and being really you know, negative in an unconstructive way, that's not a great way to win your opponent's supporters' second and third choices.
1: So that's one thing that you think would be better about the campaign, but what about the quality or the ideological positioning of the winner in a ranked choice election?
0: So the other aspect of it is to win in this ranked choice of voting election in both the primaries and the general, you need to get broad majority support. Uh, So, You can no longer win, especially in the primaries. There are, you know, I think more than half of people elected to Congress right now won their first primary without majority support. So that avenue with ranked choice kind of goes away because you need to put together at least a majority of your party or majority of the voters in your primary. And then in the the general election, it's not just going to be a, a right party and a left party, so to speak. There could be people in between them running. There could be people on the outside running. Getting rid of the spoiler problem does, I think, kind of um, reinforce kind of the median voter theorem. So wherever the electorate's at, whether the electorate's on the right or the left, there is going to be more true mathematical incentive for the candidate to be positioned in the place that allows them to get the broadest majority of the voters wherever they happen to be at.
1: A lot of people who are complaining about the current system suggest that it's the primary itself that's leading candidates to play to the primary electorate. And therefore, that's more to the left or the right, depending on the party. But if you still run a primary, then you're still having a primary electorate and you're still having candidates, regardless of whether they're getting a rank choice majority or regular plurality, they're still playing to that slice of the electorate, the primary electorate. Other people have proposed, right, that you do a primary that doesn't have party. What are your thoughts about sort of those top five or top four, like the jungle primary type thing that they have in California? Do you think that should be part of the reform or how do you think about that?
0: There are a number of really innovative and positive ways we can address what you're pointing out, which is a fundamental problem. And let's just elaborate on that problem a little bit further. Let's talk about Congress. We've got a problem of um, most congressional districts being, quote, safe for one party or the other, which means that, you know, if we know that the Democrats are going to win this district or we know the Republicans are going to win that district, Essentially, the primary for that election becomes the de facto general election. So that's kind of one really important thing to understand in terms of the, the...
1: Except that it excludes the minority party from it. from
0: Which is a huge problem. Exactly. Huge problem. So, right. Exactly. So it excludes the minority party. The other piece of this is that participation in these primaries is much smaller so that if you can build a, a strong, coherent faction, you can wield a tremendous amount of influence in that primary election. And as you were saying, really kind of strike fear into the heart of <laughs> whatever candidates, whether they're incumbent or not incumbent, want to run for that office. They have to be very pliant for these coherent factions unless they are able to to build their own, which again is tough in a low participation election. And so then you layer onto it the, the plurality problem of, of that of that, which adds just another dimension, uh, to, to the problem of being able to win that primary with less. So there's kind of different schools of thought about what the best way to fix it is. I think the problem is so bad that it ranked about our perspective is there's a number of, of ways that would be tremendous improvements, including, uh, some, some advocates like Catherine Gell and and many others now have advocated having an open primary system where you, uh, You just have all the candidates that want to be nominated from all the different parties or independents. They run in a single primary that all primary voters vote in, regardless of party registration or lack thereof. And then you promote, let's say, four or five candidates to the general election. And now that much larger general, it's like, you know, three to six times larger, depending on the election cycle, the general election voters use rank choice voting to rank you know, four or five candidates. I think a very strong case can be made for that in general. And um, I think it has tremendous power to offset some of the problems that we have with the current system. It doesn't solve everything. There are other advocates for ranked choice voting that would prefer a system that um, doesn't weaken parties as much. Many countries don't have public primaries at all. Their parties choose their nominees, basically. Um, So, from a political scientist's perspective, there are significant reasons why you might want parties to be able to have more cohesion and have more control over their platform and their nominees and that sort of thing. The countries that have these strong parties also typically have much more robust multi-party competition in their general election. So that's, that's the needle. The thread is how do you transition, if you wanted that, how do you transition to a system where you have strong multi-party competition? Because I think many are rightfully fearful of strengthening parties while only having two parties to, to choose from, if that makes sense. So this, this top five or top four system has an interesting thing. is As you're waiting for, you know, new parties to form and strengthen themselves and build you know, the other bases up and, and whatnot, it allows for if you had a party that has kind of two wings in it that are very popular, like let's say you're in a red state and there's like your Trump Republicans and your not Trump Republicans – it's quite conceivable that you could be promoting two or three candidates out of that primary into a top five general. And then the general electorate would get to be the ones that decide, you know, amongst these candidates, which one has the broadest appeal.
1: So tell me about the the forming of your group, Rank the Vote. Who did you do that with and why did you decide to make a, uh, I guess it's a nonprofit to go forward and do this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So back to the Massachusetts story we mentioned. So the Massachusetts, you know, going back to twenty sixteen in Massachusetts, almost nobody was talking about ranked choice voting. Um, there was a handful of strong advocates. Let's say five. <laughs> they might have a you know little email list between them of about two hundred supporters. So Maine, the state of Maine, has this incredible ballot measure campaign where they become the first U.S. state to pass ranked choice voting for all state and federal elections. And those advocates are like, it's you know best day of their life. Uh, they're like, wow, Maine just showed that any this can be done state by state, like marriage equality, like cannabis legalization. We have a strategy here that we can actually do. So let's do this in Massachusetts. So they, their goal was to apply standard grassroots organizing practices to grow support for ranked choice voting in Massachusetts and then run a ballot measure here they had a kickoff meeting right after that contentious 2016 election with all the issues with the primaries and the general election, you the Bernie Hillary thing, and then the Trump Hillary thing. A lot of discontent and people looking for change. And ranked choice voting had a lot of positive resonance in that environment, as it still does. And they were able to grow from five advocates to 7,000 volunteers and 200 supporters to 50,000 supporters over just two to three years. And that allowed us to attract the funding to run the yes-on-two ballot measure, which narrowly failed, unfortunately, 45 to 55%. Uh, it was probably a little premature. Our strength was our field and volunteer operation, and we had to run it during the pandemic. So it was. it's clear from the voting patterns that the measure did very well amongst uh, Massachusetts Democrats, uh, 60 to 65% supported it. It did very well around greater Boston and in large cities in Massachusetts generally. It did great around Northampton and Amherst. The places where the education movement before the ballot measure was weakest—North Shore, south of Boston, central Massachusetts—that's that's where we uh, we lost heavily, and um, you know, weren't able to get that five points we needed to to pull it off. Who opposed it? Um, very small number of opponents who were heavily outspent. The major opponents were kind of uh, some. You know, kind of right leaning conservative groups uh, that also oppose things like dark money reform and other things. They also opposed this, you know, kind of election reform as well. Um, unfortunately, our governor, Charlie Baker, who was quite popular in, in Massachusetts, also came out against it kind of at the last minute. Very unclear as to why. His ostensible reason was he, he says, uh, look, we're in a pandemic. People are freaked out about voting. This is just going to make it more complicated that right there could have accounted for the five points right there because he is a very trusted influencer amongst many in massachusetts and especially in the areas that we lost the places we lost overlay very strongly with his strongest support
1: so you had this institution that was working to pass something in massachusetts but it seems like you've kind of grown your aspirations to look more around the country? How did that change?
0: Yeah. So, um, as the campaign was professionalizing in Massachusetts, you know, we hired professional political campaigners to run the ballot measure. Um, some of the longtime volunteer leaders, like myself and some others, we were excited about the possibility of taking what worked really well in Massachusetts, growing from no one having ever heard about it to a movement with you know 7,000 volunteers and tens of thousands of supporters. We went from no politicians endorsing this to two thirds of our congressional delegation, six out of nine people uh, endorsing it, including you know household names like Ayanna Presley, Kathy Clark, uh, Senator Warren, Senator Markey, uh, former Governor Weld, former Governor Patrick, Senator Kerry, who was also former secretary of state and is now in the Biden administration, Samantha Power. All these folks were publicly endorsing ranked choice voting allowing us to achieve our one of our major goals, which was to take this rank choice voting idea that, what is that, and take it out of the nerd stream and into the mainstream. And so we thought to ourselves, if we can replicate this across the U.S., if we can share our techniques with other rank choice advocates in other states, we could really build a movement in the U.S. And so that was our goal. And uh, that's what we've started to do. Since we formed, we've co-founded over 20 state Groups, volunteer-led grassroots organizations, they're growing support for ranked choice voting in their state and really inspiring us. And we now work with a, a network of 28 state groups, and there are other state groups that are doing great work on ranked choice voting as well. That you know are not a direct part of our support network. So altogether now, there's probably really active movements for ranked choice voting in about 44, 45 out of 50 states.
1: Do you sense a difference between states that are receptive? to passing ranked choice voting in states that are less receptive and
0: does that break down on the red-blue divide at all? So I think what I would say about that is we're really early in this process you know I think the early rap was ranked choice voting that's going to be a progressive thing look at the look at the early movers the cities that adopted it first: San Francisco uh Minneapolis Cambridge Massachusetts using it since 1942. Well it's not
1: coming out of Idaho and Mississippi.
0: Well, it's not, but you know, uh, can you name the state that is leading the country, like blowing away all the other states as far as municipal implementations? Well, Alaska did become the second state to adopt it statewide, which was a big deal and is worth noting in what you're saying. Utah is now the leader in municipal adoptions. They're up to like 23 and going. The reason for that is they've had a strong interest in ranked choice voting in the Republican Party there for a long time. And they passed a bipartisan local option bill that made it easier for cities and towns to adopt. Utah's a leader, and many uh, Republicans in other states are looking to the successes there. Most recently, Virginia, the GOP there. Um, I'm sure your listeners have been thinking about the Virginia GOP a little bit over the last year. They were looking at how to kind of rebuild their presence in the state after the blue wave. They were going to nominate their candidates for statewide office in 2020. And there was going to be crowded fields, like we talked about in these primaries. And some of the participants in these crowded fields were some pretty scary characters. There was a woman who had uh, endorsed the insurrection on the Capitol, for example. And with a strong base of support, one could envision her winning the primary for governor with 25 to 30%. Now, not only is that culturally scary for all of us, but if you're a Republican, you're like, this is not a great look for our party. And we're going to get our butts kicked in the general election if we nominate this candidate. So the Virginia GOP chose to use ranked choice voting in their nominating convention to choose their statewide nominees. And that's how Glenn Youngkin won. The theory that, you know, ranked choice voting is going to help nominate the most sort of broadly supported, broadly viable candidates, at least within your party, seems to have borne out well there in that whether you like Glenn Youngkin or not, He did very well amongst uh, the general electorate, as did their other statewide nominees, and was able to pull off an upset. So all this to say, not to to overly celebrate one party's victories or another, but, you know, ranked choice voting is being embraced by Republicans in Virginia, just as it was embraced by Democrats in Massachusetts and, and elsewhere. Tell me a little about the sort
1: of ecosystem of advocates of ranked choice voting. There's your group... Who else is out there and how do you work together?
0: Yeah. So um, it, it's, it's grown to become over the last, I'd say, five years, a really robust ecosystem. For many years, FairVote was kind of responsible for putting this type of structural election reform back on the map in the US. They formed in the early 90s and they kind of got their first big win in San Francisco in 2002, where they passed ranked choice voting there. Since Maine one, uh, other groups, like we talked about Unite America, they've become one of the leading advocates for ranked choice voting uh, in the US, as well as uh, anti-corruption organization with a very strong digital media presence called Represent.US. Um, there's some other groups, uh, Represent Women, which focuses on improving women's representation through structural reforms and other means. Ranked choice voting is a big part of what they talk about, one of the big things they talk about. There's a group called the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center, which provides uh, support to, especially to election administrators and guidance to advocates and election officials on equipment and best practices. There's groups like Democracy Rising that have built up tremendous expertise in voter education and consulting for that to help states and cities that are implementing do the most effective rollout. Uh, so these are these are a number of the groups. How we work with them, rank the votes job, really our role is to uh, grow grassroots support, increase the awareness amongst activists and regular people in the states through grassroots organizing. We do this sort of get people excited about that, get them volunteering to share what they've learned about rank choice voting with others. So we're growing uh, supporters, our email list, volunteer base grassroots donations to accelerate that process. And then ultimately, as we build up these organizations and they have really effective, articulate speakers, bureaus that can deliver a ranked choice voting message to other civic and political organizations and political and business leaders, they start winning endorsements to sort of create the conditions for winning municipal and then statewide legislative enactments or ballot enactments.
1: If if you're like me, the biggest threat to the country right now is the Trumpist threat, the threat of people who are willing to baldly undermine the electoral process and and, uh, vote for someone who likes authoritarians and just has so many character flaws. Um, How do you think this particular potential reform, which is not going to happen quickly, Do you think this has any potential to help with that giant problem?
0: Absolutely. Uh, And I think uh, there's increasing body of evidence, you know, is, is the alarm has grown increasingly, unfortunately, over the last few years about the possibility that we could lose our democracy in the United States, something that's completely unthinkable. The benefits of election reform with ranked choice voting to helping prevent that have become pretty clear. And the ways in which our current election system is giving a path to victory for anti-democratic forces is also becoming more evident. So we talked about these groups that are working on it. So it's kind of a multi-pronged strategy. The ultimate goal is implementing ranked choice voting, you know, kind of nationally for all state and federal elections. We talked a lot about single winner ranked choice voting, which is the most prevalent in the U.S. right now. Most advocates, not all, but most advocates would like to see us get to a system which is a proportional system. And we think for the US, ranked choice voting could be the most effective way, most realistic way to implement such a proportional system. I guess in a nutshell, how does this address the question of you know anti-democratic forces or authoritarianism and how quickly can it take effect? To get to that national enactment, we've got what ranked vote is doing, building awareness that doesn't immediately fix the problem. We're going to start working on municipal wins so people can get familiar with the voting system and be more open to changing it. Doesn't immediately fix the problem, but lays the groundwork. Groups like Catherine Gale's Institute for Political Innovation, United America, and a few other organizations that are funding in the next cycle and the cycle after that statewide campaigns to win ranked choice voting. So there's going to be a ranked choice voting statewide campaign in Missouri, which will affect how state and federal officials are elected. There will be one in Nevada. There will likely be one in one or more other states in 2022, and then a series of those in 2024. That could seriously improve the situation for avoiding the election of authoritarians in in 2024 and 2026. So that's kind of a, a nice short-term step. Um, doesn't help in 2022. Alaska helps in 2022. Uh, they want it in 2020, so they'll be using it in 2022.
1: It might protect Lisa Murkowski.
0: Yeah, exactly. It might protect Lisa Murkowski who, you know, uh, for many on the, you know, progressive side might not be their favorite senator, but sure looks a heck of a lot better than some of the alternatives. And in terms of protecting democracy, certainly a much better track record than some of the people she'll be competing against in 2022. So, so I think that's an important lens to look at this, even if you're completely happy with your side of the partisan spectrum whether you're a Republican or Democrat, think about how this could help in terms of allowing you to work with portions of the other side of the spectrum. And so over time, kind of the vision here is through, through building up these statewide wins and building up support to switch our election system state by state and then nationally to rank choice voting, the system that's in place will be one that makes it much harder for authoritarians to win in a proportional system just a real brief thing right now we talked about all these safe districts where it's this one's for democrats this one's for republicans the beautiful thing about uh, proportional systems is you go from essentially uh, single member districts where you got winner voters who win and voters who lose you know some get their candidates, some don't to so go to what they call multi member districts you're electing 5 people from the district at a time and instead of needing like a majority to win that district now each of those 5 candidates need like 17% to win a seat. What that means is if you're a Democrat in Oklahoma and you're 33% of your district, right now you're never going to elect a Democratic representative out of that district with ranked choice voting. If you're 33% of the district and there's you know a five-member district, you might elect one or two candidates to Congress from that district. Similarly, in Massachusetts where we elect all Democrats and it it's 33% Republicans in the state, that delegation probably be three Republicans out of nine instead of zero,
1: which is not great for the democratic party. If they can't, uh, carry all of Massachusetts the way they currently do. If red States aren't also making the same reform, you'd have to wonder whether, uh, there, there weren't some pretty big risks to having a governing party. If like the reformist States make changes like that. And, and the, uh, other ones
0: don't. Yeah, and for that very reason, the in terms of like the the sort of pathway to change here, the statewide enactments. First of all, it's not legal right now for states to adopt multi-member congressional districts on their own. There's federal legislation that would have to change, so that change should be done nationally. In the meantime, you know, just w- winning rank choice voting with a single winner elections, whether they're the top five or the the main style instant runoff that's kind of the pathway to get there. But where you end up is is in a situation where you no longer have just uh, two parties duking it out. You've got more of a spectrum of, let's say, three to six parties that more accurately reflect the views of Americans. You've seen all these studies of the American political tribes and how if you broke apart the Democratic Party, there's probably two or three points of view there, and similarly on the Republican side. And the idea is that you have less animosity in that system for the reasons we discussed and you know you can get fluid coalitions between those to pass various types of legislation and the other thing that's often pointed out by advocates of proportional representation is you know there's been a populist movement across the world over the last decade and you can compare how that played out in countries like germany with proportional representation or denmark where similarly like let's say 15 to 20% voters were really attracted to this kind of populist message. Same in the US. The differences in Germany in a proportional system, those 15 to 20% got 15 to 20% of the seats in the Bundestag, where they were rapidly isolated by a centrist coalition between the Christian Democrats and the social Democrats. In the United States, they took over one of the two major parties that happened to have other structural advantages in terms of, you know, the electoral college and districting and other things, and effectively took over arguably the most important government in the world for for a series of years.
1: I kind of wonder whether it makes sense for you to muddy your rank the vote message with a lot of these other multi-member parliamentary proportional representation messages. There's going to be differences of opinion on those that are separate and might get you into trouble a little bit in forming the coalition you need to get this first step.
0: I think you're absolutely right about that. And that's why in Massachusetts, we really focused on Maine-style instant runoff voting, which had been proven to be implementable in Maine. I think it's worth talking about you know, potential visions for the future and potential ways to solve problems. But practically speaking, you know, as we build our way up to that, it's really a conversation that uh, includes things like you talked about, that the top five the main style, ranked choice voting, winning at a municipal level, just so people can get comfortable with the mechanics of changing voting, which has been the same for two centuries. So I I think you're right on as far as that observation goes. I mean, we used to have multi-member
1: congressional districts in a lot of states. There were problems with them too. One of the reasons they broke it up into single members was that you would have districts more likely to elect a minority when you had racial block voting by whites to keep out minority
0: candidates. I'm glad you mentioned that. I don't want to be clear there the about the multi-member districts that preceded in the past versus these those used plurality block voting, which is still used in many municipal uh, municipalities. What's being proposed by advocates here is proportional representation, like what Cambridge has used for over 80 years. They're completely night and day difference. To your point, when you have a cohesive majority or even plurality under block voting. They can block out all minority representation. It's almost a mirror opposite. When you use proportional representation at large, you get the most mathematically precise minority representation possible. And the experience of Cambridge has shown that very effectively. Just to give you an idea of the voter experience in Cambridge so think about the electorate white, black, Asian, Latino, Democrat, Republican, you know, all different shades. In Cambridge, uh, 77% of voters see their first choice elected to office in every election. I believe it's like 91% see their first or second choice and over 95% see one of their top three choices. Now, typically in these elections, they're choosing from over 20 choices and they're seeing their first or second with over 90% chance being elected. So it's a totally different paradigm. It's almost a qualitatively different type of democracy where every voter can almost be guaranteed that someone they relate to will represent them in office.
1: Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how representative Cambridge is of more broad electorates, but uh but it's a it's a interesting example. Let me ask you about uh just a, a little bit more about your your enterprise. Where have you found support financially and what have been the biggest challenges in putting this together and growing it as something that can have real impact.
0: Um, so, finding our support financially, um, we started out doing a combination of small dollar, you know, medium and, and large dollar, all, all private uh, donations. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of um, foundation money right now for Ranked choice voting. There are some amazing foundations doing amazing work. Uh, in other electoral reforms, a lot of focus on fair districting and anti-voter suppression, which are obviously critical needs. We're looking forward to ranked choice voting kind of cracking back into that funding stream. But uh, really, our lifeblood is for in five-figure donors with a passion for making our democracy the best it can be and for pushing back against anti-democratic forces. People who are really understand the system issues and don't wanna be in the same place in 2026 and 2028, wanna have a really strong democracy that they feel can uh, perform really well for Americans and also uh, really put the danger posed by these extremist threats that ultimately represent a relatively small amount of people kind of back in the box.
1: So has it been easy to run this group and keep it going? or what challenges do you find?
0: The dedication of the volunteers we work with in the other states is inspiring. Our staff of myself and five others has worked really hard. Um, And the fact that they've persevered through COVID and been able to grow. So our network of state partners, which are, like I said, most of these groups have just formed in the last two years. They grew 250% in volunteers and 280% in supporters. And they grew their fundraising efforts by 400% in 2021 during the pandemic. And that's despite the fact that you know most of our playbook, a lot of it is geared towards in-person live outreach and getting in front of the public and in front of other activists at town halls and at political rallies and farmer's markets and giving them a short elevator pitch about ranked choice voting. So despite that, we were able to grow through that, but certainly COVID was a challenge. Working with all volunteer organizations is a challenge as well. So one of our initiatives is to help these groups with the money that they've raised, start to hire a backbone of full-time organizers so that they can, you know, to support their their volunteer base. Those are kind of the biggest challenges. We're excited to be addressing them. The other challenge is, is you know, growing fundraising. This is a, a key instrument to ending the authoritarian threat. If we work hard, we can do this incrementally by 2028. It's the kind of thing where the more money we can generate for this, the faster we can make it happen. There are obviously some hard limits based on the election cycles and whatnot. We're gonna have a lot of focus on fundraising this year uh, and helping connect with different groups of people with different concerns. Like we talked a lot about people concerned about authoritarianism. There's other reasons to, to, to like this reform just in terms of strengthening our democracy, giving voters a more powerful ballot and uh, you know more voice and more choice. Uh, so work on that message with different groups get more volunteer energy, more money, and, and move this along as quickly as we can.
1: Nathan, is there a question I didn't ask you that I should
0: have? We always like to to, to get the question, how can I get involved? Feel free to reach out to me directly, Nathan.Lockwood at RankTheVote.us. Um, sign up for rank the vote at our website. You can find your state group to get involved there. If you'd like to volunteer, there's lots of volunteer actions you can do. You could train to be a public speaker. You could help with live outreach or phone banking. If you are, you know, pretty busy, but you really support this, anything you can do to donate, whether it's $5 or $500,000 will have a tremendous impact in improving our country.
1: Well, thanks for taking the time to tell us what you're up to. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, I want to thank you so much, Nathaniel, for having me on your show and being able to talk to you and your audience today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: That was Nathan at Rank the Vote. He's at rankthevote.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.